This episode is brought to you by Gustiamo, the online store for Italian ingredients and pantry staples. Learn more at gustiamo.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're talking organization. Not mise en place or keeping your knives in a row, but labor organizing. If any restaurant worker is listening to this and is like, yes, I want something different, but I don't know where to start. First step they just need to do is to find one of us and get plugged in. As independent contractors, they can't directly tell people, you know, when or, or where to work, but by using sort of gamified nudges to push people, that is sort of how they um, move the workforce around. Tune in to Meet in 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week I interview someone who inspires me with their work and their wisdom. And today I have an exceptional individual with me, Yasmin Khan. I've admired her cookbooks and I've loved being in the kitchen with her, but having her today to talk about her brand new book, Ripe Figs, is such a pleasure because what she's done with this book is combine an incredibly important set of questions such as what is the meaning of borders during the 21st century and some incredibly accessible, delicious recipes that I want to cook and you'll want to cook too. So welcome to the pod, Gasmin. So happy to have you here. It's so great to be speaking to you. Thanks for inviting me on. So this is your third book and I'd love to know how you got started and what you're trying to communicate through all of the work that you do. Sure. Well, I have a non-traditional route into cookbook writing, I guess. Um, I trained in law and then worked for non-profits for about a decade, working primarily on human rights issues, a, a real broad range of stuff from police shootings, working on human rights in the Middle East. You know, the journey of writing my first cookbook really began around eight years ago, where I went through just a period of being super burnt out with work and needing to take some time off. And around that time, I decided to go and spend some time with my grandmother in northern Iran. My mum's side of the family are from there, and my family are small-scale farmers. So growing up, when we'd go and visit my grandparents, it was visiting this gorgeous rice farm uh, with like an abundant array of vegetables, such as eggplants and tomatoes and peppers and uh, broad beans and herbs. I mean, you know, we ate most of the food that we grew. So I had this real love of food instilled in me from a really young age. And when I was on this particular trip, I had the idea for my first book, which is called The Saffron Tales. And it's about my culinary journey through Iran, cooking and eating in people's home kitchens and sharing recipes and stories from that. And my motivation for writing that first book was to try and get beyond the headlines and show people the Iran that I know and love, this place of beauty and history and culture. Because too often, especially in the US, Iran is only seen through a very narrow political lens. So that was the idea for my first cookbook. And when I was a human rights campaigner, although I guess I still am in many ways. I think, I think you still are, quite, quite definitely. <laughs> well, what I knew from that time period was that if you were trying to get a piece of legislation changed or if you were trying to get some press for something, the first thing you needed to do was to 
kind of connect people sat in, I don't know, a an apartment in Brooklyn with what was going on in, say, somewhere in Iraq. And, you know, that, that process of building empathy with a complete stranger was the first thing that needed to happen. So then I did my second book, which was about the food of Palestine. Um, when I was a nonprofit worker for a few years, uh, Israel-Palestine was my beat. So I kind of knew the region very well. I went back and forth quite a lot. So I'd kind of, you know, had a lot of experience of working with kind of both Israeli and Palestinian grassroots organizations on the ground. And that was a really wonderful book, again, about storytelling. It was specifically about the Palestinian experience and really delved into the food, the culture, what the daily life was like living under occupation. And then my third book, which has just been released in the US, is called Ripe Figs. And this time I'm coming out of the Middle East a little bit, one step along uh, to the Eastern Mediterranean. And it's recipes and stories from Greece, Turkey and Cyprus. And this book, as well as celebrating the incredible food of the region, whether it's olive oil and, and gorgeous roasted lamb and beautiful, you know, herb pack salads, it's also exploring migration because that area in the last six years, has seen the biggest movement of people into Europe since the Second World War. This is like remnants of the Syrian civil war, also legacies of Iraq and Afghanistan and the wars there. And yeah, I felt the area was like a microcosm of the issue of borders and migration. And whilst the book is about that particular region, and the food is certainly about that particular region, I think the wider message of the book can be applied anywhere, including what's going on in the US along the Mexico border. I mean, there's no question that migration is creating the changes that we're going to see in this coming century. And like, you went to the heart of it, because there's so much movement of the people through the regions that you're looking at. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your family and relationship to the notion of migration and refugees, because you have both in your own family, and how those personal stories actually might have influenced your motivation to do this book and meet people who are today's refugees and today's migrants. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm a second generation immigrant, kind of born in London, um, so British by birth and, and passport, but I'm of mixed heritage. My mum is from Iran and my dad is from Pakistan. And my family, my parents, I should say, were economic migrants to the UK, you know, for work and study. But, you know, close family members of mine, aunts, uncles, cousins, second cousins, have been a variety of things. You know, I've got family members who paid people smugglers to get them over the hills of Turkey because the situation in Iran was so volatile and dangerous that their lives were at risk. And, you know, I've got an aunt who was able to claim political asylum here. And had she not, it perhaps would have been inevitable that she at some point would have been imprisoned because close members of my family were active organising against the uh, Islamic regime in Iran and, you know, faced torture, detention and execution for, for, for that activity. So, so I guess I know very close at hand, you know, the reasons why people move and the necessity also for why some people have to leave their homes, uh, which trust me, no one, no one wants to do, you know, like no one wants to feel that they have to leave a place where they build all their roots and connections in order to protect their lives. And so, yeah, it was a very personal book for me in that way, because I feel, okay, so I'm British, but, you know, in the last decade, politicians on, on both sides of the Atlantic have really, I mean, they've been doing it for longer than this as well, but I feel it's become more visceral. But just, you know, scapegoated 
refugees and migrants so much, you know, it was kind of what caused Brexit here in the UK. And it certainly dominated, you know, this idea that we didn't want migrants coming in from Europe. And certainly, of course, it dominated the Trump years so much, you know, the obsession with walls and borders and the Muslim ban. And it struck me as a debate that was going in the wrong direction and also didn't reflect the reality, which is, and I've really grown to understand this since researching the book, that there isn't some kind of refugee crisis anywhere. Humans throughout all of history have migrated as a species when it's been necessary for our survival. It's just an intrinsic pattern of how we exist. And um, again, you know, you mentioned climate change and I spoke about it earlier. What I think is something that we all need to start thinking about in quite a serious way is, well, the World Bank predicts that by 2050, we're going to have around 150 million climate refugees. Now, many nonprofits say that that World Bank estimate is very conservative, that it's going to be a lot larger than that. So what does that mean in the coming decades when we start seeing huge numbers of people moving? Do we treat people humanely? Do we say, we know what, it's one shared planet, people can work elsewhere, people can live elsewhere? You know, where does this go? And <laughs> these are the questions I'm trying to pose at the dining table through this book. When you were traveling, you have seen some very humane ways to treat refugees. But I'm wondering in being in this region, and being so connected to and spending time with refugees and people who are trying to solve problems for this population humanely. Do you feel like you've seen the answer in doing the research for this book? Uh, it's a good question. I think that I've certainly seen the potential through this. Um, so often, I think, especially in richer countries such as, you know, the UK and the US, uh, there's this sense of scarcity, isn't there, around migrants and refugees that like, hey, we're struggling in this country. We can't let more people in. It's hard enough. There's issues around jobs. And then, you know, if you just look at the numbers... I mean, Turkey is the biggest recipient of refugees in the world. They took 3.6 million refugees last year. And if you compare that with the U United States, um, the figures are somewhere around 122,000. I mean, those figures, they're in your book and they're just astonishing. And, and again, for those of you who are listening, like there's so many facts woven into these beautiful stories that Yasmin has written. I'm, I'm wondering if when you were talking to people at, let's say, Melissa in Athens or Home for All, could you talk about some of the people that you met along the way whose humanity and desire to treat the refugees as humans, you know, is so inspiring and really part of what moved me so much about your book? Yeah, it, it really inspired me too. I think it's so easy sometimes to see kind of the political re responses at the top and just think, oh God, we're all doomed. And then what really inspired me was so many of the volunteer initiatives. And in Athens, I can begin with a story from there. There's this incredibly wonderful uh, women's group called Melissa, which means honeybee in Athens. Uh, what they do is they provide like a safe space for refugee and migrant women to come together. They offer language classes, workshops to kind of skill people up. But one of the stories that inspired me the most is they have this initiative called Breakfast in the Park, where they make 
uh, home-cooked meals to go out and give to kind of refugees who are there. And the whole point being is that the, the meals have to be home-cooked and put into packages because when you cook for someone in your home, you're not just transferring like a set of ingredients to them. You're actually transferring a whole set of emotions that say that I care for you. You're transmitting this whole sense of belonging and connection. And so that was just a wonderful initiative. And then Home for All... And I, and I don't say this lightly because I've done a lot of human rights work over several decades now, but this is probably one of the most inspiring stories I've ever heard. Home for All is on the Greek island of Lesbos, which is this beautiful idyllic island with turquoise shimmering, you know, blue waters and 11 million olive trees on the island. That is not an exaggeration. That's how many they are. It's, it's just forested. And Nikos and Katerina were a couple. Nikos was a fisherman. Katerina ran the fish restaurant. And one night Nikos was out fishing and a boat uh, approached the shore and he saw that there were some people on there that, you know, looked a bit lost and bedraggled. And he was like, are you okay? And, and they were like, well, uh, we, we've just come from Syria. We're escaping the, the civil war. And I mean, he was pretty gobsmacked as, as you would be if you just came across someone on a beach, you know, saying that. And so he went back home, told his wife, and they immediately gathered some blankets and food and took it out and fed the refugees. But what's incredible is over the coming years, of coming months, I should say, as more and more people started to arrive on this island fleeing the Syrian civil war, Nikos and Katerina decided they just had to do something about this. So they, they changed their restaurant into a non-profit, started applying for funding and grants for that. And, and when I was visiting them, I spent quite a few, quite a few days with them. Uh, what they did is now every day, twice a day, they put on free food for refugees who are living in the nearby camps. But they're not just giving out food in a plastic like container. They are giving food on tablecloths, you know, covered in white linen with proper plates, proper glassware and cutlery. And again, it's kind of all home cooked food or that semblance of it. And the idea again is to try and give people a sense of dignity at a time when so many in the camps have lost so much. And it just was so powerful to see that because I think so often it's so easy to see people when they're going through these struggles in this kind of dehumanizing, slightly victim way, whereas actually to, yeah, say, hey, come to my table, let's just act as if we can have a normal exchange and you can feel safe through that. I just thought it was so powerful. There, there are so many things that I, I want to talk about here. One is Katerina, at first, she, I think she brought the food to someone who she watched him try to find a place to perch to eat. And that notion of actually giving someone a table, giving someone a seat at a table and the dignity and the peace of that and to break from the camps, to be away from that was so important and that that really moved me also two people changing their lives because a boat landed on their beach i think is extraordinary and the work that you're doing in in telling these stories and doing the travel and i'll get to that in a minute is also so inspiring but when i read the story of nico and katarina i was like you know what can i do um and there's so many stories of how volunteers can change the world in this book in seeing all the things that people have done is there some place that listeners you think if they're moved by these stories as well can start and do something that's productive 
towards welcoming this community or anything along those lines? Sure. So there's this organization and it's in the US and it's called Choose Love. It's an umbrella group that supports and funds a lot of these small grassroots initiatives. Um, It was through them that I was put in contact with a lot of the groups I visited when I was in the Eastern Mediterranean. So if you just Google Choose Love, I know they've got a bunch of projects around the borders of the US if you want to do kind of more closer to home funding. And yeah, I mean, I think it's difficult, isn't it? Because on the one hand, these people do seem exceptional, but I also think we all have this tremendous capacity to care and to love and to give. And we do it all the time, don't we, to our friends and our families. And I think sometimes what puts us off, perhaps going a step further with political or social action, is this sense of, well, what can I change? What can I achieve? These problems are so big. But I guess... What I would like to emphasize, and I've, I've done a lot of work with families, especially when I worked on um, deaths following police contact, which I worked on for about five years in the UK, obviously a very live issue in the US as well. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, sadly. Oh. And, you know, when I was constantly faced with families who weren't getting any prosecutions from police officers, because again, the situation is very similar here. Actually, I realized the best thing that we can, you know, I did in those circumstances was just to support an individual family through a process. And that is sometimes so important. And what I would also say is that, and again, this is my experience, but I think it's backed up with a lot of research. And I think it was backed up with a lot of the pandemic research as well, that people who volunteer end up having a very kind of a higher uh, sense of life satisfaction. And I don't know, there's something about the mindset. So it's it's hard to feel bummed out about your own life when you spend just maybe half a a day a week doing something in, in, in your community. So there's always plenty of ways to get involved. Another word that you use that comes up a lot in the book, so it really resonated with me and I want to just investigate it a little bit more with you, is this notion of safety. When you think about safety and migration, like what does that mean to you? You know, I come from a background of when I was a child, it was against the backdrop of the Iran-Iraq war. And as a child, we also moved around a lot. So safety has always been something I've been interested in because it's also been a huge factor for many of the people I've worked with or interviews over the years. And um, I think that there is a really interesting role that food can play in giving us a felt sense of safety. Again, I think, you know, the pandemic is a great example of that. I don't know if this was the same for you or people you knew, but, you know, I read so many articles here about how people were kind of retreating and kind of cooking the things that perhaps their mothers cooked or what they ate when they were growing up, trying to hold on to something that reminds you of a time when, you know, you were standing on firmer ground. Food can really do that. And there is this sense, I think, when you're eating food from from your younger days, it can, it can invoke a feeling of safety. And that's what I saw, I think, time and time again, when, you know, I might be in the camp speaking to people and the circumstances would would be really dire. But, you know, we'd be talking about favorite recipes and next thing you know, we'd be laughing and we'd be kind of exchanging stories. And yeah, it has the power to transport us, I think. Well, with that thought, I'm going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some really delicious food that crosses cultures, crosses boundaries and borders. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Gustiamo, the online store for ingredients and pantry staples from Italy. Gustiamo's mission is to improve the quality of Italian food in the States. They independently import the best and most authentic food 
from Italian farmers and food makers, wonderful people dedicated to their land and their traditions. When you're searching for quality Italian pasta, San Marzano tomatoes, and real extra virgin olive oil, Gustiamo has them all. Shop their vinegars, coffees, sweets, and so much more. From northern hilltop hazelnut farmers in Piemonte to southern sea salt millers off the coast of Sicily, Gustiamo works exclusively with small family food companies in Italy. When you shop with Gustiamo, you'll know that your ingredients are authentically Italian and of the highest quality. For our listeners, Gustiamo is offering a 10% discount on your online order with Gusti code HRN. Learn more at gustiamo.com. That's G U S T I A M O.com. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. My guest today is the extraordinary Yasmin Khan, who's written Ripe Figs, a spectacular cookbook and travelogue. I said the word travelogue, and I was like, oh, right, let's talk about travel a little bit before we get to food. Because having been an editor, honestly, for 30 years, I spent a lot of time assigning travel stories, thinking about travel, and thinking about where do people want to go. And after I read your book, I had this wave of almost nausea, thinking about, wow, all the stories we've told have been so cheerful. Like, let's go to Cyprus and try the, try the olive oil. Let's go to Greece and do a wine tour. While what goes on in these countries is so much more complex. And one of the things I thought was really powerful about the book is that you turn this notion of travelogue inside out. When you set out on this journey, had you developed that notion of, you know, not all travel is beautiful, not all travel is wine glasses and sunsets? Or did that emerge as you went and had these experiences? Oh, so much to unpack in there. Uh, First of all, I don't think anyone needs to feel bad for putting out cheerful stories about food and travel. So, you know. Well, (laughs) relentlessly, but yes, thank you. (laughs) Because, Because actually one of the great joys that I think all of us take is from the from the wonder and beauty and and uh, that comes from sharing those stories and it's incredibly inspiring I think uh, to be transported away uh, from your worries especially sometimes you know like in our present circumstances where many of us have been traveling for a long time but I do think that this notion of not all travel being enjoyable is something I've been working on for a while or just been um very clear about expressing especially in current Instagram age where you know it's just somebody smiling in front of like a market stall you know with a bunch of beautiful like like ripe tomatoes and and it's as if like that is the most joyous experience that person's ever had I mean yeah sure some travel is like that but I mean I've been traveling extensively for again several decades and I know that like not all travel is fun you know sometimes like the food is really bad or your hotel room bed is really uncomfortable or you've just perhaps I don't know gone through a really difficult time in your life so you're not even able to enjoy the beautiful place that you're in and I guess what I really like to do in my work is 
express the sum of the human experience. And I guess I wanted to reflect that in all of my cookbooks, which is why, I mean, in Zaytun, which is a cookbook I really love with fantastic recipes, but it, you know, it starts with my detention at Tel Aviv airport, which was not a very pleasant you know, experience. And I think, um, you know, I went through on my own personal journey whilst writing the book, you know, going through a difficult few years in my personal life. And yeah, it's weird how now, I guess, with a bit of distance, I can see that that's kind of melded together in this book because it has a lot of personal elements in it. And I hope that it tries and expresses the, yeah, the totality of what we experience when we travel. I think it does that quite well. And I think that you set the tone for it because in the introduction, you describe how, in fact, one of the things that was challenging in your personal life is that you had a miscarriage. And in fact, the Vogue article that you wrote on it, which I recommend to everyone who's listening, went deeper into your personal experience because you had not just one miscarriage during the process of doing this book, but three. And I just wonder whether in bringing that into the story, whether it shaped your thoughts about what is life? So, yeah, I mean, I certainly did not expect when I wrote this book pitch to, you know, then a couple of years later be writing the beginning essay about a pregnancy loss. And I wanted to include that story because it was such an integral part of perhaps, well, you know, what this book became for me, you know, a lot of the times when I was traveling, well, a few of the trips that I traveled, I was pregnant. Um, Certainly a few of the research trips were shortly after miscarriages. And I do think that loss makes you more attuned to other loss. So it also, I think, meant that a lot of the stories of the people I was meeting were affecting me quite deeply. And again, bringing it back to the food, you know, it was also this real case of seeing how food could bring about a sense of safety and comfort and connection. I'm I'm curious if the work that you've done in your entire career, including these books, in fact, makes you feel more hopeful or how you build optimism as you see the complexity of life? Well, I think that without a doubt, I am a optimist. And that is born out of seeing all of the things that I've seen over the years. Because I think if you just stick to kind of watching, you know, the news or reading like the headlines and, you know, the papers, it's really easy to feel so demoralized by what's going on in the world. But once you start seeing that almost on every topic, there are thousands, if not millions of people working towards an alternative, it really is inspiring. And certainly something I've seen time and time again, working in conflict zones or working on other human rights issues, is the resilience of the human spirit. And we do have the capacity to undergo the most unimaginable challenges. And, you know, I mean, I I say at the beginning of the book, but and still find hope. So that is my guiding light now. And I think that, you know, there's role for lots of different writers in the world. But I think my contribution at at this time in history is certainly to try and make people feel more hopeful because that's what we need. I think hope's one of the bedrocks of existence as a society and hope is what kind of gives us ultimately resilience. And I think hope also breeds action, right? If you're hopeless, then you're just sort of, you're stuck and you can't do anything. On to the food. So the food in this book, Yasmin, is so fantastic. And one of the things that I think is so interesting here is the food makes such a powerful point for your overall mission, which is to unite humanity across borders. And the reason I say that is that 
the stories in the book are about individual places. The recipes are in chapters that unite the way that we eat. They're united by ingredients. Did you know that before you started? I mean, did you know that you would go and you would find, you know, the use of this pantry that's sort of a pan Eastern Mediterranean? Yeah. So that was kind of a stylistic decision, you know, to put all the recipes from all of the countries together in, in, in chapters. But also it just also reflects the reality that... I mean, not only have the borders of the Eastern Mediterranean been fluid over several thousand millennia, uh, the food has as well, you know, as a result of that. So you're always going to find that Greek salad, where, and it'll be called a different name, you know, in each country you're in. But, you know, that crunchy salad with feta on top. You're going to have flatbreads. You're going to have delicious tarama, like fish roe dip. You're going to have incredible grilled meats, you know, kebabs barbecued over hot coals, wonderful soups made with yogurt and and lovely stews flavoured with pomegranate molasses and sumac. So I guess, you know, the region of London where I'm from, the area where I'm from, Hackney, is an area with historic kind of Greek, Turkish and Cypriot uh, migration. So many of my local grocery stores are, you know, filled with crates of halloumi or vats of, you know, marinated olives. So it's a re- it was a cuisine that I was very familiar with having lived in this Eastern Mediterranean neighborhood for 12 years now. So there's a chef, Musa Dagdeverin, who's, we wrote about at Food and Wine, who's world famous and a brilliant a sort of ethnographer of cuisine. And he says that food has no ethnicity, only geography. Is that something that you believe? Yes, I do. And isn't that a wonderful phrase? When he said it, I, I love it. I just, when he said it, I had to like, you know, when you like mid interview, I had to like pause for a minute and be like, what does he, what does he mean by that? And I was like, oh gosh, that's so, that's so true. So I think that what is interesting about that is that again, it breaks down this concept of nation states. I mean, if you think about it, nation states are very modern constructs. We're only looking a few hundred years old compared to kind of several millennia of civilization. And I guess what I'd like about that is this idea that there isn't like, you know, I mean, you see it a lot in the Middle East around hummus or whatever, like who, which country has the ownership over hummus? And it's just like, well, they all do, you know, it doesn't do anyone any service to say, well, this is Palestinian or this is Lebanese or this is Syrian. It's just like, well, actually, look, you all eat similar food because it's a regional cuisine. And yes, some places have a kind of boulder on the global stage with it. But um, yeah, I, I really like that because, again, it starts speaking to our commonality instead of our difference. One thing that I thought was interesting when you're in the in the refugee camps or just among people who come from so many different places, that the food that they were eating really did in some way remind them of home, even if the food was of that very place and they were from Iraq or Afghanistan. To what you attribute that particular universality? Is it the notion of comfort? Is it the simplicity of the ingredients? I think perhaps it's just the style of cooking. Home-cooked meals, you know, stews that are kind of prepared over several hours, slow-roasted meats. There's something about perhaps the, the way, the preparation, but also I think how people eat. You know, Greece, Turkey and Cyprus are very famous for like meze, which isn't just about a set of like small plates plates and the meals on them. You know, meze is, is a whole way and style of eating. You know, if you're eating meze, it means you are, you are sitting down at a big table with friends, 
probably a bottle of ouzo or raki over a meal that will take hours, you know, and the whole point of it isn't just to eat the food, it is to savor the experience of being with family and friends. And so I think that's the other element of that, that food, again, has so many roles within our social fabric. And I think it's that that ultimately perhaps gives us the most connection with it. And in the book, you know, there's some recipes that tie back to your family, like the chana masala, which like, that's the first thing I'm going to make. But what are the couple of recipes that you would tell people to make just as soon as they buy your book? Well, it's it's really difficult because I have to say I do love many of the recipes in this book. But um, I'm going to perhaps share, like, I eat a lot of soup. You know, that's something that I just, I love at all seasons. And so I'm always very proud of the soup recipes in my book. And perhaps one of my favorite recipes is this recipe for a pumpkin and cardamom soup, which is enriched with coconut milk. And it actually was the dish that sparked this book. It was cooked for me by a Greek Cypriot friend in Berlin one one Christmas, <laughs> you know, melding influences there. And it was over that meal that he started talking to me about the food of Cyprus. So I really love that. I really love the hot yogurt soup. Uh, it's, it's a real classic of Turkish cuisine where yogurt is cooked with like some chicken broth and some rice and lots of mint and then it's finished with a beautiful pulbebe which you guys all know is Aleppo pepper like spiked chili butter. I'm very excited to try that because I've in reading the recipe you're just adding like hot chicken broth to yogurt which sounds kind of magical to me and also like really that works so I can't wait to try that. Yeah do give that a go. And then there are dishes that like just transport me, recipes that just transport me. So like Istanbul's favorite famous mackerel sandwich is what I've called it. But like anyone who's been to Istanbul or walked along the Bosporus there, you know, there's always men grilling mackerel and making these incredible fish sandwiches that are then stuffed with a really punchy salad um, dressed with pomegranate molasses, sumac, and again, those pulbebe chili flakes. So it's kind of like sour and and, and, and spicy and, and astringent and sweet. And it's it's just, yeah, it's such a great recipe to transport you. And then the last one I'll just say is the pomegranate sumac chicken. Everyone loves a good roast chicken recipe. And this is again, marinated in kind of Syrian spices, um, lots of allspice in there. Some, you know, again, sumac and pomegranate molasses. And um, it's inspired by a recipe, by a dish I ate in a restaurant in Lesbos, which is that Greek island again. The restaurant was called Reem and it was set up by a Syrian doctor who found himself stranded on the island as a refugee. And yeah, opened up this kind of kitchen, this brilliant restaurant where refugees and locals could kind of eat together. And yeah, it's it's funny. It's like inspired by something I ate on a Greek island and then developed in my London home. So again, lots of influences. Well, thank you for those recommendations. Um, I ask each guest on the podcast if they can give a shout out to a woman that they admire, someone who you think more people need to know about. And I would just love to hear what your shout out would be. Sure. I would love to give a shout out to Reem Cassis, a fellow cookbook author. Honestly, she's just one of the nicest people I have had the pleasure to meet over the last few years. And I really count her as a friend now. And she's got a new book out also. It's called The Arabesque Table. I love Reem. 
I had her on the pod. So those of you who are listening, you can hear a little bit more from her. She's brilliant and her new book is great. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. Um, yes, I mean, I've enjoyed every minute of it. And thank you, those of you who are listening. I'll be back again next week with some more extraordinary stories from an extraordinary woman. Thanks so much and have a great week. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.